Welcome to the Destiny Leaders Podcast, where we are dedicated to developing the leader in you. Well, we're in the studio today uh, with a great crew. Uh, This is Phil Brassfield. Welcome to the Destiny Leaders Podcast, where we're absolutely committed to developing the leader in you. Landon Galloway, start to say Dr. Landon Galloway. He's not yet, yet, but he's working on a Ph.D. in New Testament studies, and uh, he's going to be leading us through an incredible biblical story today, and we're joined by Jared Moss, who's on our staff and kind of our resident millennial thinker, (laughs) and uh, he's going to be adding color commentary to the story uh, from that perspective, and also Kendall Bowman, our intern, is with us today. And so it's going to be a fun conversation. Uh, we want to always provide great content to help you uh, discover the leader in you, develop that to God's full potential. And uh, sometimes we do that through biblical stories and, and biblical studies and all kinds of leadership training. And so today we're talking about a great biblical story. Landon, thanks for joining us. And uh, you're going to lead us through a great story, a, a story that's kind of an iconic story in the New Testament. Right, yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here today and glad to be on the podcast. You know, Dr. Brassfield, I think a lot of um, what we can learn about leadership from the Bible isn't always in the uh, the epistles where there's just this kind of spelled out, you know, do this, this, this. Um, but sometimes our leadership principles are best taught through the stories of the Bible, through the narratives of the Bible. And so I'm going to read a story that you Whenever you hear it, you're going to think it's an unlikely place to find leadership principles and lessons, but I think it will be uh, beneficial for us all. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Oh yeah, um, Luke chapter 16. So I'm going to just read a little bit of it, then explain a little bit of it, and uh, we'll see where it ends up. So starting reading in verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Earlier, you made fun of me because I have the yellow iPhone 10. Yeah, (laughs) but at least I'm not dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And so you have a tale of two men here. And and the characters are both introduced at the beginning of this parable that Jesus tells. And the first man is a rich man, and he lives a life of extreme luxury. He has the finest clothes. Uh, royal outer garments, purple is the color of royalty. And not only did he have royal outer ga- garments, but he also he was wearing fine linen, which that was his undergarments. So this man even had fancy underwear. Um, and so he had a royal outer garments, fancy undergarments. It said that he lived in luxury. Uh, the actual Greek translation there is that he feasted sumptuously, uh, which means he, he ate really well. Every single day, you know, uh, we are, you know, think about Thanksgiving, think about Christmas, think about those times of year where you just eat all you can eat. This man lived that way every single day. Uh, we're told that he lived in a home with gates, and the word for gates in the Greek is pulon, uh, which those aren't the gates outside of a normal residential area. Those are, are the gates outside of a city or a palace. So the image that Jesus is drawing is this palatial estate that the man lives in. So everything about him shows us that he has a very luxurious, good life. And then he even has a strong family life. Uh, We find out later in the story that he has five brothers who he loves very much. So he has it all. He has the house. He has the food. He has the clothes. He has the family. He has it all. But then contrasted with him was a man who lived a life of extreme poverty named Lazarus. 
uh, notice he was laid at the gate. So he wasn't even able to get to the gate. He was laid there. He was so immobile that someone had to pick him up, either from starvation or some debilitating illness or disability. He was unable to move on his own, so he had to be laid at the gate. Uh, He was ill, which means he was covered with sores. Uh, Those sores rendered him ritually unclean, so now he's not able to go to the temple or participate in any worship of Israel because of his uncleanness. Um, He was hungry, begging for food. Uh, And then, just to add insult to injury, even the dogs licked his sores, which I do find a little interesting here, that dogs, whether it's cool or not with you, Dogs, they lick sores to make them better. There's something Mm -hmm. antibacterial in their saliva. So the dogs had more of a um, a level of compassion, more so than the rich man. (laughs) And so we read this story incidentally like, oh, that's disgusting. The dogs licked his sores. How how gross is that? But in actuality, what Jesus is trying to show us is that, that by their nature, these dogs are more instinctually, instinctively, compassionate than the rich man is. So even the rich man lacks the the moral and ethical conduct of the canines. Uh, And the rabbis, there's a really interesting saying in one of the later rabbis writing about the second century, and he says this, he said, there are three situations that resulted in no life. One who depended on food from another's table, one who was ruled by his wife, and one whose body was full of source. Oh my goodness. So we don't know if Lazarus had a wife. However, we know that he depended on food from someone else's table, and we know that his body was full of sores. Uh, And in this case, two out of three is bad. Um, So Jesus has telling this story from the perspective of the the religious culture that he's in. People said this man has has no life worth living. Uh, if, if If he was dependent on a food from someone's table, that was no life. If he has sores, that's no life. So now there are two things that should result in no life. Um, but then let's keep reading the story. Uh, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where, it was, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, pay attention to this. This is important here. Uh, the the rich man had everything. Lazarus had nothing. The rich man feasted sumptuously. Lazarus was dependent on scraps. Mm-hmm. But both of their deaths are recorded nonchalantly. It just simply says, the time came when the beggar died. The rich man also died. Uh, the Greek word there is agenito. It came to pass. It's just a simple, nondescript word. So even though they live lives so vastly different, they both met the same fate. As, um, a reminder, as time would have it. As time words. would have it. Yeah. It just came to pass. Mm-hmm. Both died. I think it's a, a uh, somber and sober reminder to all of us that no matter what we accomplish or don't accomplish, no matter how great or not great we are, how mm-hmm. big our platform is or how insignificant our platform is, whether we acquire wealth or don't acquire wealth, uh, it's appointed once for a man to die. And that death is the great equalizer. Yeah. Wow. And um, at the end of the at the end of our lives, we'll be judged based on how we lived, and what we've acquired, the position, the status, the wealth, really is of no account eternally. Death is the great equalizer. There, one man had much, one had little, but both their lives simply came to pass. Um, and I can't help but get excited here because we're told 
that Lazarus, when he came to pass, we're told that he went with the angels to Abraham's side. So in just one moment, in just one moment, Lazarus went from poverty to paradise, from outside the rich man's gates to inside heaven's gates, from lying along to lounging with the patriarchs, and from famished to feasting. Wow. Um, Another part of the the synoptic tradition, and by synoptic tradition, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are are the synoptic gospels, and there's a lot of um, uh, relationship between the three gospels, and it's likely that Luke probably, whenever Luke's writing, his readers would have also known of Matthew as a possibility. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, we read this, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So what Matthew, what Jesus says in Matthew is that whenever, um, whenever one dies and goes to the side of Abraham, that is a feast. And so this contrast between begging for scraps from the rich man to just one moment he is at the side of Abraham indulging in a great feast. And I think it should make all of us uh, long for the day when all the wrongs will be made right. And uh, the the early church had this expression, Maranatha, which means our Lord come. And they were ready for the for justice to reign. They were ready for righteousness to reign. They were ready for all the wrongs to be made right and for all the sicknesses to be healed and for all the addictions to be broken and all those that were bound to be set free. And that in just one moment, whenever the skies part, the trumpet sounds, everything that's wrong with the world as it is now will be made right. And and this story of Lazarus just gives a pre, gives us a preview of what's waiting for us on the other side. Yeah. Every injustice, every time we've been wronged, everything that's been evil and bad in our lives can be reversed in just one moment. You know, it's a great point. You mentioned the Maranatha in the early church. That, that phrase, that word meant something to them, perhaps. You know, for us, it's like, oh, okay, the Lord comes, and we've had a lot of heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of been, you know, for most of us, it's been pretty nice here. So it's not easy often for us to imagine that consummate event where the Lord appears and settles the scores and balances the field and suddenly... As you said, it's a wonderful way to put right. it that injustice has now been made right. And but to them, they were so so victimized by injustice and inequality and and society just being as it is today, in many ways unfair. Right. That they long for a day when the Lord would return, not just so they could see this celestial happening of God's return, but they knew what would happen when He came. Right. That He would settle all that stuff. That's right. awesome. Well, even in our more immediate history, think about the. Um, the the Negro spirituals and the and the songs that were written during the Great Depression, they all talked about heaven yeah. and the pearly gates and when the rolls called up yonder and gospel ships and like all, all these things because they lived in a time where they longed and so we need to be reminded that we're living on a in a favored era of history where we've experienced great things. But many of our brothers and sisters that are alive today living in the majority world and those that have gone before us had this sense of of longing for the return of Jesus, the parousia, the, this moment where Jesus returns and now uh, the all that's wrong is made right. And we see this as a, a microcosm in this story, that this man, 
He was treated unfairly. He was treated unjustly. He was sick. He was deprived. He was on the wrong side of history. He was outside the gates. He was separated from religion. He was separated from the temple system. And in just one moment, everything that was wrong was made right. And uh, we need to look forward to that day. And the, the inverse is true of the rich man. He went from having everything. I mean, there's there's a level of irony that I think Jesus is telling the parable, and he, and he has to be a little smile on his face, because uh, the rich man went from ignoring the beggar to begging the beggar. <laughs> wow. Yeah. The rich man went from not sparing a crumb from his plate to begging for a drop a of water. Wow. So he was feasting sumptuously every single day, and now he doesn't have a drip of water. Wow. Um, and and there is a day. You know, he goes from being inside the gates to now being outside. Now, right. now where Lazarus was looking in, and now he's looking in. Wow. And he's separated from the gates. So this grand reversal takes place. And um, and now the rich man and Abraham, they have this, conver- uh, have this conversation in verse 24. He says, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am am in agony in this fire. And Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to there uh, cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. There's a couple other things in this section that further incriminates the rich man. Uh, first of all, he says, can you send Lazarus to get me water? He knew his name. <laughs> yeah. Think about that. This man who had been sitting outside of his gates for all this time, who he never helped, never gave water, never gave food, never relieved his suffering, had had every uh, mean available to himself, never shared, never helped, and he did that by no, and he, even though he knew his name. And I think that God is judging the rich man even more harshly, not because he ignored someone who was suffering, but he knew his name and still ignored him. Wow. And the rich man still sees Lazarus as a as a servant. Yeah. So even though he's in Hades, Lazarus is in heaven, the rich man still sees Lazarus as his errand boy. My goodness. <laughs> Can you send the beggar to get me some water? Yeah. Like in other words, I mean, why status like this the status has been reversed, like eschatologically, the grand scheme, the wrong's been made right, the those who have, have now have not, those who are up are now down. Everything's reversed, but in the man is so arrogant and so stuck in the old way of thinking that he still sees Lazarus as a servant. Can you go get? Can he go get me some water? Uh, he then answered, "Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. So you won't give me water. That's not going to happen. So can you at least send Lazarus to my family? I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment." Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And you know, Jesus has to have a huge smile on his face because he's telling this parable to Pharisees. Yeah, right. (laughs) And before too long, there will be one who rose from the dead. dead. 
He said to them, if they, if, if even if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Mm-hmm. And you know he's smiling because he knows what's happening in the future, and they don't know it. But he's trying to say, you're just like those brothers, that even when I come back to you after the resurrection, you're not going to believe because how hard your heart is. If you yeah. don't believe Moses, if you don't believe the prophets, then you're not going to believe and sometimes we think that, oh, if I could just see a miracle, if yes. I could just experience you know, a supernatural moment, if I could just see someone raised from the dead. But Jesus says, look, you've got the Moses, you've got the prophets, you've got the Bible, you've got the scriptures, you've got the teachings. And if all that still fails to convince you, then no miracle is going to suffice or to do. Uh, I also find that um, you know, the raising of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, um, is not recorded in Luke. As a matter of fact, it's only recorded in John's Gospel. But you also have to wonder how close Jesus told this parable to the raising of Lazarus right. there, too. Because if you remember correctly, uh, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, they did not interpret that as a sign to worship Jesus. They interpreted that as, we need to stop Jesus. Right. And, they, and so now, <laughs> one who's raised from the it, So Jesus said, look, even if Lazarus is raised from the dead, you're not going to believe your heart's going to be hardened. Yeah. <laughs> so this literally happened in John's Gospel. Lazarus was raised from the dead, and they didn't repent. They didn't say, oh, wow, you must be the Messiah. You must be the Lord. You must be the King. You must be God. Instead, their hearts were further hardened, and they said, we need to kill you. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know how close he told this parable, to when the historical event happened where he raised Lazarus from the dead. But I think it's very interesting and probably another layer of irony that Jesus is using here. Like, one name Lazarus really is going to rise from the dead. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's not going to change your hearts or change your minds. Mm-hmm. Um, but a couple other things before we get to our main point here. Uh, let's, the, the, the rich man is still a terrible person all the way around. Um, he doesn't even really care about his family until he finds out that his own thirst isn't going to be quenched. So his first request is a self. Is a self. I'm thirsty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And only after that is denied, then he goes, oh, by the way, I guess I don't want brothers to come to hell either. You know, right. so can you, but even then, um, he never apologizes to Lazarus. He, he still sees Lazarus as an errand boy. And, um, and so that's what, that's how the story ends with that, with his request being denied. Uh, but here's what I want to get to. Uh, I want to ask a question, and I know you're listening on podcast and you can't answer, but the guys in the room can answer. Um, what is the name of the poor man? Anyone? The millennial okay. thinker? The beggar? In the, the beggar in the... What's his Lazarus. name? Lazarus. Okay. What's the name of the rich man? No name. Just a rich guy. Just a rich man. Wow. <laughs> now, isn't it striking... That the way our world works and our society works is that we know the name of the rich man. We know Bill Gates. We know Steve Jobs. We know the name of the rich man. Wow. But we don't know the name of the poor man. But from the perspective of heaven, Jesus tells a story and says, the poor man that no one else acknowledges. (laughs) Yeah. The poor man that is laid at the gate. (laughs) The poor man who is begging for crumbs. The poor man who wasn't allowed in the temple. The poor man who's the only kindness ever given to him was a dog licking his sores. That is someone that I know. That's the name that I know. I don't even know the name of the rich man. The rich man who was high in society, who had every resource, who had it all. And so what we see here is what really matters in the grand scheme of life, in the grand scheme of ministry, is whether or not Jesus knows your name. 
And whether he knows your name or not makes all the difference. Because the rich man had everything, but he didn't know Jesus and Jesus didn't know him. The poor man had nothing, but he's elevated to this high status simply because Jesus knew his name. And by the way, his name, Lazarus, is from the Hebrew Eleazar, which, once again, is an ironic tool that Jesus is using, because you might remember Eleazar is a servant of Abraham. Right. And so now you see a, a return of Eleazar to Abraham. But still, that's not the main point. The name Eleazar simply means a, a, a God who helps. A God who helps. Wow. And so Amen. all that matters isn't what the rich man has, what Lazarus has. It matters, does he know your name, and does he help you? And I'm just thankful that my success in ministry doesn't really uh, depend on what I have or what I don't have. Or who knows you. Or who knows me, or what resources I have. Because isn't that part of the conversation now? It's like, if you want to be successful, you've got to have a platform. Yeah. You know, you've got to have a bunch of followers. You've got to you got to follow a bunch of people that might not even be real people. But in case they follow you back, then you got a lot more right. followers. And now a publisher is more like like we we have all this work of building platforms of how many people did you have Sunday or right. uh, how many times have you preached? How many services are you running now? And and not that those things matter or don't. But here's the point: is like at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you have or what you don't have. It matters. Does God know your name? And are you one that he helps? You know, as you're as you're breaking that story open for us, I mean, so incredibly, I, I see a contrast with the value systems of men and the value systems of heaven. And you bring that out about God knowing His name and the the rich guy being kind of this anonymous, almost to God like an inconsequential figure in right. the story, a prop almost, though he's a real guy. You know, he's but he's kind of a prop for the story. And it kind of contrasts heaven's value system. And I, I know, you know, in my life, there's no doubt that there's been this war that rages in my task and in my leadership and in things that I do between what's important to me, for mm-hmm. me, right. and what's important to God, for God. Mm-hmm. And that idea is echoed in the Gospels again and again and again. I was thinking about where Jesus talked about the, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And right. that's another contrast of heaven's value system versus the value systems of men and, and how often Jesus makes that point. And here, it's like a movie. He tells us the story to, to demonstrate it and illustrate it, but yet it's not the only time. that he, It's like he is constantly pounding this drum about about what's important to heaven versus what's important to men. And then the second thing uh, that I just take, take away from that is how deeply troubling the nature of selfishness is to God. Mm-hmm. In other words, how big a deal that is to God. Yeah. Right. And how easy it is for us to be like, the, you know, the, the, uh, the Pharisee in the synagogue, you know, that God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. Right. You know, I, you know, I don't do this and I don't do that. He did all the stuff right. But he, it was how troubling was it that he was so consumed with himself to the degree that Jesus said he went home condemned, though he had checked all the boxes. And uh, I mean, I, I think it's a powerful story. And those are things that I see that jump out, you know, uh, so that, that it really is not so much how we live. Mm-hmm. I mean, how we die, because we all die. Right. But it's really about how we live. Right. And that theme of reversal 
is prevalent throughout the Gospels, but particularly so in Luke's Gospel. I mean, it begins in in Mary's song from the very beginning, the Magnificat. Mm. So as soon as the Gospel opens, I believe that Mary is singing the song, and then later Jesus tells the story of the rich man of Lazarus that becomes a um, a, a parabolic outliving of the story. Um, for now on, she said, all generations will call me blessed. The mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And she goes down and says, he's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. So from the very beginning, she tells us what kind of Messiah he's going to be. Mm. And the point of this isn't what people, you know, is, is not an anti- wealthy polemic. Uh, matter of fact, Zacchaeus was very rich. And in chapter 19, only three chapters after our story, we're told he was very rich and he finds grace and forgiveness and repentance through Jesus. So it's not about it's not about wealth, but what it's about is that whenever the value system of the world, that we think those who have the most money, those who have the most power, right. those who have the biggest platform, those who have the loudest voice, those who have the most privilege, that's who the kingdom's for. But this parable is just another example of many throughout the Gospels that all that really matters is if the Lord knows your name or not. And if he helps you, then what you have or don't have is really inconsequential. Amen. Amen. I think it's so true. I see this even in my generation specifically growing up. You know, I'm just raised on Instagram and Facebook now. And so we've got this window. You're talking about looking into these gates. I mean, social media is like a digital gate to look into the, quote, successful. And we just measure it like that. We measure by follower counts, likes, budgets, buildings, and so on and so forth. And it is so amazing how influential we can be when we're in our lane and we're faithful to the Lord and we're just in this rhythm, you know, abiding in Him and then doing what He's called us to do rather than constantly looking at someone else's life and saying, man, we've got to get bigger. We've got to have a bigger name, bigger budget, got to be promoted. And it's this thirst that can't be quenched. And, I mean, we see it all through the Scripture. I want to be found faithful, and I find that faithful is being known by Christ. You know, I'm reminded even now... Jesus talks about this, you know, when he talks about people who came to him and said, you know, we cast out demons in your name and we, you know, did so on and so forth. And he says, depart from me. And what does he say to him? I never knew you. I mean, that's shocking to me, you know. What's your name again? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, one of the, how fearful could it be that I could be a, quote, successful pastor or leader and actually be known for, like, knowing God? And what what a shock it would be if all the while it wasn't in the right motive. It wasn't about him. And I were to find out that though they knew me to know him, he didn't know me. It really is interesting, and it makes me just want to press in and be faithful and just be known by God and be a lover from him. Wow. It's like, okay, Lord, didn't you follow me on Instagram? <laughs> exactly. I never knew your name. Didn't you see like, I had 3,000 followers. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you know, didn't you know? And, and what the rabbi said, <laughs> I think it's so funny how life, life changes so much, but it's all fundamentally the same. Right. Because the rabbis looked at this man and said, you're a beggar. And you're get source, so you have no life. Wow. And I think that's what social media has done to our generation is like if you don't have a certain yeah. lifestyle or status, then you you're you nobody. Don't have life. You're yeah. insignificant. You have so even the life the life that you actually live is insignificant to the life that's portrayed uh, in digital you know right. uh, outlets. So um, none of that really matters though. 
Yeah. It's about whether whether or not you God knows your name. You know something that I I was just sitting here thinking about this, and I had to chuck a little bit on the inside because you know we can really uh, we can really beat up on the rich guy. Yeah, right. yeah, I mean, honestly, we can really beat up on the rich guy and think, "What a wretch!" You know, and of course, that's right. obviously the story Jesus is telling. Right. But I'm thinking, okay, I don't live in that affluent neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have like gates where you get into my house. But honestly, if a beggar came and sat on the corner of my property every single day, I mean, you know, you might not think that would get annoying or would be a, a little disconcerting. But for every one of you listening who's ever, like at Christmas time, got aggravated at the Salvation Army Santa Claus because yeah, you'd right. already because you'd stopped at the pot three times already, and you, you see him and you think, oh no, I mean, you know, do I have any? <laughs> I don't, you either don't have any money, or it's like, why did you know what? How much could they? You know, that same attitude. Mm-hmm. can be prevalent in our life and yeah. we can point at the rich guy and and then be so guilty of of that i mean if somebody did come and you know the, you know in his defense you know it might become white noise after about the first 30 days right. of somebody sitting at the gate begging for alms you know at what point do you say okay i don't have any change i'll get you next time mm-hmm. yeah you, you know i, I think I think there is that air of the story that that we have to kind of see ourselves in both sides of the gate. Sure, wow. You know, to right. look and okay, Lord, I want to be that guy. You know my name, but I'm also probably part of my life the guy mm-hmm. on the rich side. That's you know that's right. Well, and a big part of the story really is about about justice. Notice the the rich man is never implicitly called evil. His sure. sinfulness is never delineated in the account. Rather, his punishment simply boils down to how he treated Lazarus, right, right. which is which is very convicting and condemning. And I, and I just want to echo what you say because we read the stories, but Jesus told the story against the Pharisees. And most of the stories in the Bible, the parables he taught, and even the miracles he performed were done in a way to, to uh, speak against the prevailing thought of the day. And we always want to be the hero. Mm-hmm. We always want to be Lazarus, but we have to allow for the possibility, if we're reading the Bible faithfully, wow. we have to re- allow for the possibility that we're the oh. rich man. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we like to be the the woman caught in the act of adultery. That's forgiven. <laughs> That's forgiven. <laughs> right. But we don't like to be acknowledge that, that we might be the Pharisee with the stone in our hands. Wow. You know, we, we always want to be the hero. Uh, however, we have to allow for the possibility, particularly in a context that we live in where we are, uh, whether you personally are, consider yourself wealthy or affluent, we live in a in a time and an age where we have more resource, more money, more potential than at any other time in history. Mm-hmm. Um, we're on the right side of history in many ways, so we have to at least allow for that possibility that we're not we're not always the hero. Sometimes we're the villain. Yeah. Wow. And allow the scripture to speak to us. I think that's the brilliance, too, of Jesus' teaching is when proper reflection and introspection is applied, we can always see ourselves on both sides of the coin. Wow. I mean, that's right. the point, is there are things that we would be commended for and things we probably would be convicted for, and that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. The thing is, are we listening to the story? Are we opening our heart to the Holy Spirit's right. work so that we can be benefited and be... Obviously, Jesus had an, a point that he was trying to make with a particular audience at that moment. But as we look now millennium later looking back on it reflecting on it i think it still speaks to the brilliance that the power of the holy spirit can show us 
that we can be both and not just either or. And I think that's what's healthy is not allow ourselves to ever compartmentalize ourselves where mm-hmm. it's it's me and Jesus all against them and then right. we kind of create a party, create right. a sectarian attitude where we're all right, they're all wrong. Right. The truth is in all of us there are some right and there are mm-hmm. some wrong right. that the Lord wants to bring to account. Right. You know? Yeah, I've heard it said that the job of the Bible is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Yeah. And wow. so I think when you're in that, when you're in, if you're too comfortable in life, yeah. if you read that story and never consider the fact that you might be the rich man, wow. you're probably the rich man. Yeah. <laughs> and you need that, you yeah. need that conviction. Because <laughs> yeah. the rich man would right. have you're then, probably that guy, not Lazarus. Exactly. Yeah, you're probably that guy. Yeah. Great conversation. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it today on this version of the podcast. Uh, thank you, Landon, for breaking yeah. that story open for us. And Jared and Kendall, thank you for joining us. And we hope you've been blessed today. And we'll look forward to seeing you again on an upcoming podcast. Remember, at Destiny Leaders Podcast, we are absolutely committed to developing the leader in you. Thank you for listening to the Destiny Leaders Podcast. If this episode has inspired you in any way, we'd love for you to take a moment and subscribe to our podcast. If you'd like a copy of today's notes, visit destinyleaders.com forward slash show notes. You can also sign up to have new episodes delivered straight to your inbox when they are released. Join us next time as we continue to develop the leader in you.